let me uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray that now that as we uh, turn to your word, that we would hear from you, that we would hear your voice in the scriptures this morning, that we would understand uh, what you are saying to us. Uh, for each one of us here, would you, Holy Spirit, work this word into our hearts and our lives, that we would see Jesus with greater clarity that we would see what it means to belong to him and to follow him. And we pray that you would do this for, for your glory. Amen. So uh, some of you may be familiar with uh, the church uh, Mars Hill that used to be in Seattle. Uh, it was pastored by a guy named Mark Driscoll. Over the last few months, uh, Christianity Today has had a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and it's telling the story of this church. This, this was a church that rose to prominence um, in the broader sort of reformed evangelical movement in the late 90s and into the 2000s. And they experienced just like explosive growth. So in 2013, kind of at their height, they had 15,000 people coming to this church. Um, and then in 2014 and 15, due to abusive... Um, uh, and bullying leadership uh, by the senior pastor, Mark Driscoll, uh, he left the church in 2015, and the whole thing kind of fell apart. One of the things that the podcast has done really well is to not just tell the story of this one church and kind of what happened at this one particular church, but it raises questions about the American church in general and why it is that sometimes in the American church we invite domineer, domineering leaders to take center stage. Uh, and in the words of the opening credits, these are some of the sound bites of the opening credits of the podcast. Mars Hill, the story of Mars Hill is a story about power, fame, spiritual trauma, problems faced across the spectrum of churches in America. Why are we not looking for the deep-seated reasons for this? Why do we have a culture of church and church members who prefer a narcissist leading a church? So for those who don't believe in Jesus, it's easy to see this kind of thing, to see sometimes the way churches or people do ministry, and it just proves how much of a sham to them that Christianity really is. I mean, maybe just by chance, like, that's how you feel or you're listening and that's how you feel. And I hope that if you're even like semi in that camp or that's even something that has troubled you with making you doubt, is this really true? I see so much you know, abusive uh, leadership in the church or other things that you've experienced. I hope you will see how the Bible addresses this and how this passage actually speaks to that. But certainly those of us who would identify as Christians this morning, we know friends or neighbors or coworkers that see Jesus and the claims of Christianity somewhat laughable because of how the church has sometimes done ministry. And if you're a Christian, you've been taught to care about doctrine. Like you've been taught to care about getting the message right, getting who Jesus is right, getting what he did right, that he died, that he rose again, all the things that that means. But what about the way that gospel is ministered? What about the way ministry is done? Is it important? Does it matter? 
And here's how all of this connects to our passage this morning. Because, because Paul writes this part of his letter to the Thessalonians because he wants to remind this young church what gospel ministry that's shaped by the gospel actually looks like. He wants to remind this church of the character of Christ-like ministry because he wants these young believers to continue to grow and follow his example. And by doing so, what we read in verse 12, walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. If you have a, a Bible or a bulletin, I encourage you to get that out because we're going to work through the text this morning. And as we look at this passage, there's kind of three parts to what I want us to consider. First, I want us to think about the context of what's going on, the context of this reminder from Paul. Second, the way of gospel ministry, that is, how the gospel is to be ministered. And then finally, just some practical stuff. I want us to think about why this matters and how we can actually grow in this. So first, uh, let's think about the context. It's really helpful to understand the situation of Paul's day and why he writes what he writes here. If, if you were to read uh, any you know, commentaries or scholarly works on 1 Thessalonians, uh, you would read basically all of them talk about the first century, century Greco-Roman world and how common it was for traveling preachers of various sort of religions and philosophies to make their way through towns and cities. It was kind of, you know, like a form of entertainment in certain ways. I, I just listened to some of these things that various scholars say about this situation. Many wandering charlatans made their way about the Greek world, peddling their religious or philosophical teachings and living at the expense of their devotees. The ancient world had its fair share of wandering salesmen, traveling teachers, people who tried to make a living by offering their hearers fresh wisdom or insight or some kind of magic, a new philosophy or whatever. These orators were akin to rock music legends or Hollywood stars in ancient society. They were motivated not only by money, but also by honor and public reputation. People in the crowd would be waiting for the moment when the speakers produced a money bag requesting contributions or invited people to pay more, to hear more in private. The really cynical ones among them would be waiting for darker events even still, for the speakers to single out spe for special private instruction those of either sex who were physically attractive. Now think about Paul and his companions right? They came into this city, and they were in this city for a matter of weeks, three, four, five, maybe six weeks. And when they left, they had to flee at night. And while we'll read in chapter three that the Thessalonian believers, they still remember Paul well, and they have good memories. We know that as Paul and his companions left town, that they left these new believers and this very young, vulnerable church in a place where they were not going to be favored by the Jewish community in that place. And they were not going to be favored by the Roman Gentile community in that place. And we know from the letter that they are suffering for their faith that they are being persecuted, that there is affliction. And it's not hard to imagine, right, their fellow Greek citizens, their fellow Roman citizens saying things to them like, Paul? 
He's just another wandering charlatan teacher. No different than all the others. See, he left. He left when things got hard. He stuck around where things were good. He probably just wanted money. He just wanted fame. He just wanted that sort of thing. Why are you clinging to this really weird, strange religion? It's just a sham. And so Paul writes to them and he says, it's crucial that you remember how we came and ministered to you. This is why you'll notice again and again and again in this passage, he calls them to remember the details. Just look at this, right? Verse one, he says, for you know. Verse two, just as you know. Verse five, just as you know. Verse nine, for you remember. Verse 10, you are witnesses. Verse 11, for you know. He's saying, remember how we came to you. We were not like these other traveling teachers. And you see contrast throughout this section, especially in verses 3 through 7, where it seems like Paul is contrasting the way they ministered versus the way, you know, you would think these charlatans or, or religious uh, wandering teachers would minister. So verse 3, Paul says, our appeal to you to believe this gospel wasn't based on error. It wasn't based on impure motives, and we're not trying to trick you or deceive you, but we speak as those approved by God. We're not seeking to please people. We're seeking to please God. Verse 5, we never used flattery. We didn't, we didn't try to butter you up. We didn't put on a mask to cover up, you know, greed. We didn't seek glory from people. Verse 6, remember the way that we came. Well, what, what is that way? Let's think about that. The, the way of the gospel ministry. How did Paul and his companions minister? And there's lots of things that he says in this text. I mean, too much for us to dig into every detail. But here's one way that, that we could kind of break it down and think about it. Just think about the first and second greatest commandment. Love God and love others. The first part of the way of gospel ministry begins with God, with the, the vertical direction being oriented toward God, loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, did you notice how many times Paul references God in this passage? Nine times God is mentioned, one time Christ is mentioned. Ministry that not only proclaims the gospel, but embodies the gospel, starts with this God-centeredness. It's a way of life where a person, where you, know, you and I, we recognize that we live before God's face and therefore what God thinks and pleasing God and loving God and listening to God, like that is the most important thing. And that really starts to matter when you dig into the details and you think about how a person would you know, try to serve other people or try to minister or how a church does ministry. So for Paul, right, Paul and his companions, the gospel, and this might sound very simple, but it's profound, the gospel message is not their message. Verse 2 and 8, it's the gospel of God. It's God's message of salvation. Verse 4, Paul says, they speak and they minister this as people to whom God has approved and appointed and entrusted this message. And this is the God who tests their hearts. 
Verse 5 and 10, Paul calls on God as witness, saying, God is witness. This is true, how we, did, how we ministered among you. So what this means, right, is Paul doesn't do ministry. He doesn't do ministry to impress other people. He doesn't do ministry to get glory from people. He doesn't do ministry to look good. He doesn't do ministry because he has this itching need to do something important with his life. And, well, this seems really important, so I'm going to do this. He does ministry with this love of God and this orientation toward God and wanting to please God and does it before God's face. And think about, right, how Paul and, and Silas, how they came into Thessalonica. They had been beaten with rods in Philippi. And it was after this that they came into the city of Thessalonica, and there they faced conflict as well. Paul refers to this in verse 2. Right, think about that. Paul and Silas, they had been physically hurt, beaten. But they had also been socially hurt. This is an honor and shame culture. Paul is a Roman citizen, and he was treated like someone of low social status, someone who could just be charged and beaten without a trial. Paul is publicly beaten, and this would have been a big deal. But Paul says in verse 2, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel. Over the last year, um, we've uh, sung a song that has become, it's a song that I love, and I love to play it and sing it at home. It's a song, Jesus, I, My Cross, Have Taken. I just want you to listen to verse 2 of this song and listen to this vertical, God-oriented way of viewing life and troubles. It reads this, Let the world despise and leave me. They have left my Savior too. Human hearts and looks deceive me. Thou art not like them untrue. Oh, while thou dost smile upon me, God of wisdom, love, and might, friends may hate, foes may hate, and friends disown me. Show thy face, and all is bright. You have to think about how is it that a person could be beaten, harmed, you know, socially disgraced in one city. And if you remember, they're in jail. And what do they do in jail? They sing. They sing a hymn of praise in jail. And then they get out of jail and they go to another city. And they, they sign up for it all over again. Like, how do, you, how do you do that? It's this radical, God-oriented I want to please God. Look at what God has done for me. He's given us this message. We want to proclaim this message. And this really, really matters when you go into the details because if you think practically for us, right, if you don't have this vertical orientation, then why do you serve in the ways that you serve or why do you minister in the ways that you minister? However, you would categorize the way you think about service in the world. If it's not out of this radical love for God, then, then, then who is it for? It, it's, it's for you or it's to be people-pleasing or it's because you want to be loved and accepted by others. In some way, it becomes manipulative. Other people become the means for your agenda. Their ministry started with this God-centeredness, loving and knowing God. And their ministry was also about loving others. And you see this in how Paul talks in verse 9 uh, where he says, we worked hard, we toiled night and day that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you. 
And the image you kind of get, if you were, I think if you were trying to sum it up, the image you get of what ministry looks like, it looks like this wonderful, loving family. So if you look at verse 7 of the text, he says, we were gentle among you. And this word gentle, it could also be translated uh, infant. And either way, the meaning is very similar, but it says, how did we come? How did we come among you? We were like babies. We were innocent in weakness, not using our authority. Even though, I mean, we have authority, we are apostles of the risen Christ, but we came among you gentle as infants. Verse 8, verse 7, we came like nursing mothers, right? We came tender, caring toward you, like a mother caring for her own children. Verse 8, he, he uses this uh, verb, affectionately desirous. This is a word that only occurs one time in the New Testament. But outside the New Testament, for example, it's found in a funeral inscription of parents speaking of how they long for a son that they had lost. This is how we felt toward you, Paul said. And this is why we didn't just share the message of the gospel, but we shared our whole life, our whole selves because you had become our beloved ones. Verse 11, we came like loving fathers. And in the ancient world, it was viewed as the father's duty. The father was the one who gave direction and moral instruction. And so Paul, in a sense, is holding up this well-known image of a father, and he says, this is what we did. We encouraged, and we exhorted, and we charged you. And notice what he says, they didn't just do this broadly, like what I'm doing right now to all of you in a sense, but he says, we did this, verse 11, with each one of you, like a father with his own children, we directed you, we ministered to you with the goal that you would live worthy of God. This is the way that they ministered. They had this God orientation, this loving God, and then this loving others. But I want us to think, to kind of start to wrap up here, why does this matter? Why does it matter the way ministry is done? And then how do we grow in it? So I'm going to go back to uh, the podcast, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, that I mentioned earlier. So one of the people that they interviewed uh, in this podcast, was probably about a month ago, was a guy named Josh Harris. And uh, some of you may know who that is, maybe some of you not. Josh was a megachurch pastor, a best-selling author, pastor of the Flag Church of the Sovereign Grace Network, if you know what that is. Um, Josh left the pastorate in 2015, and then in 2019 uh, posted on social media that he no longer identifies as a Christian. And it would take way too long to go into all of the details. And I'm sure there's even things that I, obviously there's many things that I don't know about that situation. And you can listen to that episode of the the rise and fall of Mars Hill to get more if you want. But what stuck out to me was how Josh described his experience in the church in the midst of conflict, in the midst of leadership issues, in the midst of this thing that was going on in the Sovereign Grace Network where there was question of whether or not they were handling some cases of sexual abuse correctly or whether there was some cover-up. And anyways, um, in all of this, at one point in the interview, Josh says this about the way that he kind of started deconstructing his faith and is now at a place where he no longer believes. 
quote, it was for me, it wasn't for me a theological question that came up and I couldn't reconcile it and that type of thing. It was the outworking of the hurt that was there. So much of what I gave myself to and so many of the people that kind of presented all these truths to me, so much of that fell apart. The way that I've been living has not led to life and expansion and love, but to a narrower and narrower controlling, fearful outlook. I know that doesn't represent all Christians, but it represented the brand of Christianity that completely shaped me for so long. Regardless of whatever you think about Josh Harris, what stuck out to me in the Mars Hill story in general is here are some examples of what happens where the church does not take seriously the way that we do ministry, the way that we embody the gospel, the way that we live the gospel, the way that we carry that message into the world. And I can tell you, I've seen this firsthand from doing student ministry, you know, before I came to Trinity, about eight years of doing student ministry and sitting across the table and having coffee with various students. And I can tell you that there is a huge student uh, or a huge effect from students that are, you know, coming out of the church or some kind of Christian background. The difference between a student who has been in a church where the gospel is lived and embodied and churches where that doesn't happen. So for some of these students, they had parents and churches and ministries that were incredibly God-centered, that were gracious and gentle, that were places where, where things were taught with clarity, but they were also places of encouragement and love. But then there were other students who, in a sense, they could like tell me information about Jesus, but it was like it was dead information, like it didn't really matter. And for some of these students, as you dig into their stories, what you start to learn is that maybe they had pastors or churches or, or, you know, uh, whatever that talked about the glory of God or talked about the grace of God and these sorts of things. But what they experienced, the feel of the room was more about control and it was more about fear and it was more about having the outward conformity of certain values and morals and those things. And it was not gentle. It matters how the truth is embodied. Uh, New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, he raises a question in his little commentary on 1 Thessalonians that if you're here this morning and you'd call yourself a Christian, I'd like you to ask yourself this question. Ready? Here's the question. If I were to describe myself like Paul does in these verses, right? So think about, you know, the way, if you have kids, the way you relate to your kids. If you're married, the way you relate to your spouse. If, you know, in this church, the way you relate to one another. If I was to describe myself like Paul does in these verses, would anyone recognize who I'm talking about? Is this a picture of us? And I have to say, this week, I've been convicted as I've been thinking about this passage because I know that I have tendencies to be controlling. And I know how I can respond in the midst of things that make me afraid. And I would guess that some of you understand that feeling of like, it's hard sometimes to be patient and gentle. Right, parents? 
<laughs> I'm not alone here. Um, and, and it's hard because we know the pull of wanting comfort and life to, to go the way we want it. And so like to step into something that's hard, to step into suffering, to step into affliction. And if that's you, if you recognize this morning, if even like looking at this passage or asking this question of yourself, if you recognize that there is in a sense a gap between where you are and what's described in this passage, I have good news for you because the answer to all of these things is the gospel itself. The gospel makes a difference, not just what we believe, but it makes a difference in how we live and how we minister and serve others in this world. And I want you to just think about Paul, right? Because Paul and his companions, it's not like they're just nicer or like better people than all of us. They are sinners like us who have learned to receive Jesus and to dwell in the gospel and to imitate him. Think about this picture in, in, sec, in 1 Thessalonians 2. Where did Paul learn the humility and gentleness of not using his authority to make demands? He learned it from Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, though he was equal with God, he did not count that equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but he made himself nothing. And he humbled himself, and he says of himself, I am gentle and lowly. You know, where, where did Paul learn that real gospel ministry isn't just sharing a message? It's not, you know, just a podcast or something like that. Where, where did he learn that it's actually like giving your life and living with other people and doing life together? He learned it from Jesus, who took on flesh and became incarnate and lived in our world and lived in our shoes. Where did Paul learn this mothering and fathering kind of love and ministry? He, he learned it from Jesus, who came into this world and reveals what the Father is like, that when we watch Jesus and we listen to Jesus, we see the Father. And Jesus, who embodies the faithful love of God that's depicted as even greater than a mother, one of my favorite little passages in Isaiah 49 where God says in, in a sense this, can you even imagine a mother who could forget the baby who is nursing at her breast? It, would it even be possible that a mother could have no compassion on her children? Even if she could forget, I will not forget you. Where did Paul learn to receive suffering and shame? He learned it from Jesus who went to the cross who was beaten, who was publicly humiliated and shamed and insulted and died for us and our sins. Paul learned all of this from Jesus because this is how Jesus ministered to Paul and this is how Jesus ministers to us. And what this means and what we've been saying already in this, in this um, sermon series of 1 Thessalonians is that the gospel makes a difference. If the gospel sinks down into us, it makes a real difference. And it makes a difference not just in what we think or even some values or things that we have, but it makes a difference in how we even just feel and interact toward others, the way we carry ourselves in the world as we realize that this gospel transforms us to be made like Je Jesus and follow him. 
So I want to give us a minute now, uh, as is our practice, after hearing God's word, to just take a moment to pause in prayer. Perhaps for those of us, if you're like me, to, to think of that gap between what it looks like to embody the gospel in your life and in your relationships and kind of where you are and to come before God and to ask for his forgiveness and his help and his grace. We'll do that and then um, I'll lead us in prayer. Let's pray.